Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Edge of Sports listeners, a quick disclaimer as we start the show. I state that Melissa Ludke, who's a tremendous interview, you're going to love this show, but I state that she was the first woman to report from a male pro sports locker room. In fact, she was the first report from a male baseball locker room. The NBA and the NHL had already opened their locker rooms to women reporters. In the NBA, there was Jane Gross. And in the NHL, there was Robin Herman, uh, Laurie Mifflin, and Helen Elliott. And in fact, since Melissa reported on the NBA during the baseball offseason, she was going into locker rooms and pro basketball to report before there was a need for any kind of legal action against baseball. Neither we at Edge of Sports nor Melissa want these women who are pioneer fighters for locker room access in their sports to be forgotten. Now... Let's get to the show. If I was going to learn how to, how to report on sports, I'd never done it before. If I was going to learn how to write sports and I was going to have a full-time job fact-checking the stories that other writers wrote, I was, that meant that I was going to get to the office maybe at 9 o'clock, but I was going to be on a subway either to Madison Square Garden or Shea Stadium or Yankee Stadium or wherever a game was that night so that I could learn and soak in everything that I had to learn to do the job that I wanted to do. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to pioneer baseball reporter Melissa Ludke, the first woman to be able to work a men's locker room. She won this via a court case over 40 years ago. I'm also going to speak with her about her trailblazing career and also the ascension last week of Kim Eng, who became the first female general manager, not only of the Miami Marlins, not only in Major League Baseball, but also in any men's North American sport. Who better to talk to about this than Melissa Ludke? I also have some choice words about a very daring move by Colin Kaepernick. Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards and more. But first, Melissa Ludke. Before we get into anything happening with the the modern game here, I I did want to ask you a little bit about your own life. I mean, because I feel like your your career trajectory uh, was so audacious. Um, Did you have any female journalistic heroes or role models growing up that you looked towards? No, and I had no expectation I was going to go into journalism. It wasn't, I was not brought into journalism through the, the love of writing or the experience of writing. I, I never participated in my school newspapers, either in high school or college or even on yearbooks. Um, the one thing I wrote at one time and, and sent back by airmail 
to my local paper in Amherst that actually printed it about two and a half months later was when I happened to be traveling with my family. My dad was on a sabbatical year during my senior year of high school. And before that, we were traveling around and we happened to be in Prague on the day before the uh, Soviet invasion. Oh, wow. And um, we left the, the afternoon or the morning right before the next day when the Soviets invaded Prague. So I was really struck by that and decided that I would become a foreign correspondent on, uh, you know, what it was like to be in Prague the day before the invasion. And so I just typed out, you know, or hand wrote, I can't remember, some little thing about just our travels and the rest. And I put it in an airmail letter and sent it to my local paper in Amherst, Massachusetts, and lo and behold, about, as I say, two and a half months later, you know, evidently they published it because a friend of mine saw it and sent it to me. So that was it. That's it. Zero. The rest of my writing was really academic term papers and the rest. And as the daughter of two professors, I was really in a stranglehold of academic writing, which is about as far away as you can get from sports writing. Um, on top of which, because I had been in Rome, Italy, my senior year of high school, when my dad had that sabbatical year as a university professor, I had fallen in love with art. I mean, of course I did. I took a history of art course, history of Renaissance. So when I went to Wellesley College, where the teacher in Rome who had taught me history of art and history of Renaissance had also gone and majored in art history, she was my role model. I knew nothing about journalism, had no, I mean, I watched the news. I loved watching Walter Cronkite. We grew up in our house having Walter Cronkite on during during dinner, and we certainly talked about news and the rest. But no, I had no sense that that was going to be something that I would that I would move towards. So, um, so it was a total surprise to me when that became the direction. And we can talk if you want about how it became the direction, but it was much more from the angle of having always participated and felt like I knew sports. And then one serendipitous moment that gave me the opportunity um, to explore that passion um, in a way that I never expected to. Well, what was that opportunity? I mean, I mean, how do you go from writing about Prague in 1968 to sports? <laughs> well, um, let me try Okay. It happened over dinner uh, one evening. I was, had graduated uh, from Wellesley College with a degree in art history, and I was sort of, I guess, just a little bit lost at the time. I was living in my folks' home that summer um, on Cape Cod, and one evening I was invited to dinner at a friend's house, and uh, Frank Gifford was a guest of theirs at the at the dinner. And my seat at the table was directly across from him. And of course, at that time, he had left football and he was sort of the matinee idol football player who became the broadcaster for ABC Sports. And the summer before in the Munich Games, he, of course, had been on that Olympic coverage with Jim McKay. And he would go on at that point, um, just starting Monday Night Football. And so, of course, I knew Frank Gifford. I knew who he was. And that evening we had a long conversation, which was joined in by a lot of people at the table. But because I was sitting across from him and I was so fascinated by this opportunity to talk sports, which is something I knew how to do, um, he at the end of that dinner gave me a compliment 
And I took it as such. He said, you know, for a girl, you know a lot about sports. And then he followed it up with a tantalizing kind of invitation. He said, the next time you're in New York, or you know, maybe if you come to New York, I'd be happy to introduce you around to people at sports at um, at ABC Sports. So although I'd never been to New York City except on a trip there with my parents when we had gone to the uh, Bronx Zoo, um, you know, and done a little bit of the kind of sightseeing in New York, I'd certainly never gone there on my own. But within a month, I had scheduled a trip to New York and. Um, true to his word, Frank met me at the Elevator Bank um, on the Avenue Americas building with ABC Sports, and he introduced me around. Um, I met all the vice presidents, you know, Chuck Howard, uh, Dan Le- I mean, you know, I, I just just the whole thing. We it serendipitously again, Rune Arledge happened to be walking out to the Elevator Bank just as I arrived and introduced me to Rune. So, you know, it was just like an amazing uh, magic carpet ride. But the most magical thing to me in the end of that was that we ended up uh, plopping our heads into an office of a woman named Ellie Rieger, who was the only woman sports producer at ABC Sports at that time. Um, She was the first and the only. And um, Ellie invited me to come in and sit down and spend a few minutes talking with her, and which I did. I was delighted to see that she was there. And she let me know that her assignment at that point was to do a store, do a one hour special on women in sports. And the reason was, is because you just had the battle of the sexes with Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Yeah. And you'd also had the passage of Title IX, which was really an attempt, as you know, to equalize opportunities for women in higher education. But sports became an avenue um, as well through that legislation. So Ellie invited me to come over to the studio where she was working on doing that. And literally for the next two or three days, I extended my time in New York and I just hung out with Ellie and her all-female crew, um, production assistants, et cetera. And um, in those three days, uh, two amazing women showed up, Donna Deverona, who had won gold medals in 1960 Olympics, and she was trying to work her way into sports broadcasting and then just out of, I mean, it was just amazing. Billy Jean King stopped by and that sealed it for me. This is what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I just saw the possibilities that women could do this. I recognized that this was my passion. Art history was what I loved studying. And when I was in Italy, it was really a part of my daily life. But um, this was my passion and I was going to follow it. And I had no idea how, where, when, what. But I moved to New York in January of 1974. I ended up getting a um, an apartment with the production assistant on that show with Ellie, a woman named Barbara Roche, who was a production assistant with ABC Sports. And she held the magic keys to the kingdom. Every month, um, even though I had a full-time job, um, just to support myself and stay in New York while I figured this out as a secretary, she would bring home the schedule for all of the events that ABC Sports was doing, including the production schedule in New York. And so I just became someone who took every single opportunity I could find on that list, including traveling to events on weekends, to do gopher work, to meet the producers, the directors. I hung out in the production studios 
over on West 65th Street. I sat in the back. Sometimes the producers just got so used to me, they would send me out to the corner bar to get martinis. You know, when Howard Cosell came in, he liked to have his martinis just so uh, when he did his voiceovers. Um, so I was really just soaking it in, meeting people. I guess you'd now call it networking. I didn't have a name for it at the time. It was just following kind of this dream, not knowing how it was going to work. And I'll, I'll cut to the chase because one of the producers who I got a chance to meet at ABC once approached me and said, um, you know, I know someone over at Sports Illustrated who's hiring. Would you like an introduction? To which I, of course, said yes. Um, I went over, was interviewed, and promptly got rejected. I mean, why wouldn't I get rejected? Everyone who was a sports editor or sports writer at a college or university newspaper wanted that job. They wanted to go to work for Sports Illustrated. So I guess I wasn't surprised, but I taped the rejection letter to my wall. And then for the rest of the next several months, whenever I would go out an assignment with ABC on anything, I'd send a postcard to the man who rejected me who was the head of the research reporter section and kind of just tell him what I was doing, you know, at ABC sports. I mean, I was sitting up with Henry Longhurst on the broadcast booth in the 18th hole of the U S open at Marinette. So I wrote him a card from there and told him. So about four months later, he actually called me back, brought me in for an interview when he'd lost someone surprisingly to a, to another job and I got hired. So, there's the story of how I got hired without having written any sports coverage and never, you know, I, I, and I found myself literally in what we called the bullpen with a whole group of people who were doing the same job I was, but my God, I quickly learned that almost to a T every single one of them had been made a major sports editor. For example, the university of Michigan sports editor, Purdue, a lot of the Midwest colleges, a lot of Princeton boys were there. Um, and I really realized at that point that I was way behind um, and that this was an opportunity for me to to really learn. So I kind of put my nose to the grindstone and began to learn how you change from being an academic writer to being a sports writer. And um, meanwhile, fact checking stories, which was my actual job. Mm. So oh. there you go. Yeah, <laughs> you answered about four of my questions with that answer. So that was that was very efficient. That was that was great. Um, how important was the women's movement of the late '60s and '70s to your own co own consciousness and your own confidence that this was something you could go after and do? You know, if I'm going to be really honest to myself, which I try to be. Um, it didn't have that much of an influence on me. I never, quote unquote, joined the women's movement. Um, as I look back, and I'm now writing um, sort of a social narrative history book on this whole time in my life and this legal action that I took, I recognize that although I wasn't one who joined the marches on the streets or joined a local group to get involved in the women's movement per se, that it was impossible to live in New York in the 1970s and read the newspapers as I did. I always loved to read and read the news and watch the news. It was impossible for me not to understand that something, something big was changing around me. And I felt like what I was doing on my own, I felt buttressed in some way by it. I will share with you that I had um, left college um, 
with, with a commencement in 1973 that I'd never forgot and had an immense impression on me. And I think speaks really probably most um, personally to your question. The commencement speaker that we had at Wellesley College that year was Shirley Chisholm. Mm. Shirley Chisholm had just been the first uh, black woman to run as a candidate for a major political party uh, in the primaries in 1972. And although, of course, she didn't make it, um, she was someone who had well been on my radar screen. I certainly knew of her, admired her, watched her. And when she came to deliver the commencement class to, to, uh, to, to commencement speech to my class at Wellesley, she spoke um, broadly to us, but she also recognized that she was watching something historic that had taken place in my own class. By far, our class, the class of 1973, had the greatest percentage of African-American students in the class as had ever happened at Wellesley College, and in fact was far, far greater than at any other of the Seven Sister schools. So when Shirley Chisholm spoke to us this day, she really reached out and told us that because of the education that we had been given and because of the skills that we'd bring into the world, that we also had an obligation. And she said we had an obligation to be engaged in the two great social movements of our day. And one, she said, was the civil rights movement. And the second was the women's movement. And I really did take her words to heart, even if, even though in that summer, that next summer, I felt lost in figuring out how I was going to be that soldier, you know, that she wanted us to be in these movements. Um, and frankly, it was probably only when I got involved in this legal action and began to recognize its significance, both as a civil rights issue, as an issue of women's rights and equal rights, that I really honestly said to myself at one point that I thought I'd done Shirley proud. So I think it was that my actions in terms of what I was doing in my own life, in terms of the pathways I was building in the sports world, were in some ways my contribution to the women's movement, but I didn't necessarily see them at that point as being integrated. Um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said, because she was at work, very um, hard at work from 1970 to 1976, as we know, uh, being in courtrooms fighting for trying to raise the um, equality of gender discrimination to what had existed with racial discrimination before in terms of the scrutiny the courts would give. And she once said, in fact, it was a line in the film about her that she understood that for some women, it was going to be about marching and about being on the streets. For her, she never saw herself as someone who would be out in the streets and marching. She was doing the more quiet work behind the scenes that would have a lasting impact on all of us. Mm -hmm. I do not compare myself to Ruth Bader Ginsburg in sharing this story, but I do note that, you know, each of us in our own ways tried to, I think, play you know, a role in what we saw as a absolutely essential movement that we had to play a role in. We were obligated to be a part of it. Mm. So that was my small part was what I was doing. And for me, sports had to be literally a 24, you know, 24 seven operation, because if I was going to learn 
how to how to report on sports. I'd never done it before. If I was going to learn how to write sports and I was going to have a full-time job fact-checking the stories that other writers wrote, I was that meant that I was going to get to the office maybe at 9 o'clock, but I was going to be on a subway either to Madison Square Garden or Shea Stadium or Yankee Stadium or wherever a game was that night so that I could learn and soak in everything that I had to learn to do the job that I wanted to do because it, it wasn't satisfactory to me to check stories that other people wrote. I felt like I had an opportunity to learn how to do something on my own, to learn how to write, to learn how to do what, what I'd been given the opportunity to do. So it was my journalism school and um, I took it, I ran with it, but it was all consuming. Wow, I wish I could play a tape of this interview to some of the journalism classes I, I speak to so they could learn something about tenacity. Because um, I think that's uh, something sometimes sorely lacking in terms of uh, what's out there right now. I, I well, do... maybe they can listen to the podcast, Dave. Oh, no, I'll, I'll be sending it out, <laughs> trust me. Particularly to the, the classes, because I've done a lot of Zoom classes and Sometimes you can get a very passive response from from students as far as like, how do I make it here? How do I do that? And I'd love to be able to play this for them um, to, to show what you what you did, like the sweat equity of what you did. Um, yeah, but you know what? I did it with great joy. I never considered it sweat equity. Um, it, it was just done with such joy. I can't tell you. I mean, the times that I spent up at the ballpark when I first got the baseball beat, which was in 1976, and I would just literally be on that D train up to Yankee Stadium. I would be so excited that I just could be there. And for most of that first year, almost, unless I was on a direct assignment that I was being given a little bit more of to do some actual reporting I was just observing. I was just watching. How do the men do this? How do they ask the questions of the manager? You know, I would get in that little huddle when the manager came out in the dugout and I would just listen. And it wasn't just listening for their questions. I was listening to how they would respond once the manager said something. How would they challenge him? How would they do this? I was just soaking it in and it was such a joy to me. I just felt like, wow, this is an amazing opportunity. And at the same time, it was very frightening because I was literally the only woman. I was the only woman on the field at that point. I was the only woman in press boxes. And so there was really this trepidation that was mixed with the joy. And it was an interesting combination. I'm glad I was young and sort of had the nerves to do it. But, um, you know, it was really um, an extraordinary learning opportunity. And I just soaked it in. How did your colleagues, uh, the people in the scrums, try to get the comments from the manager? How did they generally react to your presence, if at all? Well, I didn't try to make my presence that that visible. In other words, I wasn't trying to kind of elmo my way up to the front. I was really, you know, at the batting cage. I was kind of standing, not necessarily leaning on the batting cage as the batters were in it and being real close. But I might be in the second tier, kind of on the outside. Um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the sports writers in baseball were older men because, as you know, back in those days in particular, to be a baseball writer meant that you'd reach the sort of ultimate uh, goal of a sports writer. That was the national pastime. It was the big the biggest sport that you wanted to be covering. Might be like the National Football League now, but um, 
you know, so I hung back. I understood my place. I was much more a mother may I kind of person than I was a, um, you know, a, a, a charger or a barger into this world. I felt like I needed to understand it before I could be accepted into it. So I don't know that they reacted to me. They probably said things among themselves. I later learned in Roger Angel's uh, piece that he did sharing the beat in the New Yorker in 1979. I, I learned because the men were quite honest when another man asked them their opinion that most of them didn't want me there, didn't like me, uh, resented the fact that I was showing up and kind of ruining their 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 world that uh, that didn't uh, really want women in it. So, um, but I don't think I perceived that. And I think I conducted myself in a way that maybe was aware that um, it wouldn't be a good idea for me to try to sort of boisterously insert myself into this. So I did it gradually. I was very much a gradualist over the, you know, really three years, almost four years that I had the baseball beat, maybe starting in 76. The 77 season, I branched out a little bit more, and I can talk with you about that if you want. Um, I also had um, an experience at the end of the 76 season that really kind of gave me a window into um, some of the challenges that would sort of await me as being a woman. Um, I'm willing to sort of share with you kind of a story about when I actually went out of town on an assignment. So um, people really didn't quite. Yeah. Well, in 1976, the end of 76 season, late September or mid-September, I guess, I was approached by um, Patricia Ryan, Pat Ryan, who was one of the few women editors, and I'd really um, gotten very close to her, and she was in some ways a mentor. She was uh, the editor who signed outside writers to come in and do major pieces for the magazine, and she had decided that she wanted Roger Kahn, who wrote The Boys of Summer, to come in and sort of travel around for a couple of weeks and do a story for her on the old timers who were still in baseball. And she selected me to be the reporter who would go out and travel with him for those several weeks. Um, he had requested that he have a reporter go with him. And she, um, she selected me cause I was the baseball, I was one of the two baseball reporters and she gave me this opportunity and so the first um, stop that Roger and I made, which may be quite naturally, was Kaminsky Park because Bill Veck had uh, repurchased the uh, White Sox. And, of course, Bill Veck was definitely an old timer and a character in baseball. So, um, so we set out to go to Kaminsky Park. It was our first stop. We arrived in Chicago that afternoon. Uh, Raleigh Heyman, Heyman, who was the general manager at the time, uh, picked us up and Raleigh, uh, he knew uh, Roland Tiemann, I should say. Roland Tiemann uh, knew Roger well. And so the guys, so I drove over to the park with them and Roger asked me to pick up the press passes and, you know, we'd meet and then go up in the press box where he would sit with Vec and I would sit in the back of it, um, you know, up a few rows. And so we did that. And um, I don't think any of the sports writers from Chicago had ever seen me before or knew me. But anyway, my uh, sitting in the press box evidently caught, caused quite a stir. As Roger wrote this in his book, October Man, in 2003, several of them approached him and whispered to him that he ought to know better than putting bringing his girlfriend into the press box. And um, they wow. were very, very caustic toward him and wanted him to uh, to get me out of the press box. And, um, you know, he obviously said to them, no, and she's a reporter, et cetera. 
And then that same evening, we were supposed to meet up with Bill Veck in the Bard's Room, which is where the writers would gather. They'd have their own, uh, they had their own bar there, and it had a fireplace, and it was rather an old, I don't know if you ever went to it, but that's where we were supposed to meet up with Bill afterwards, and my assignment was going to be to drink seltzers while Roger and Bill drank scotches or whatever, gins into the late evening, and, you know, shared baseball stories, and my job was to take notes as the guys talked. So, um, you know, that sounded great to me. I was up for it. So we got to the Bard's room before the rest of the writers did. And, um, I took a seat at one of the tables and Roger went up to get my seltzer and whatever he was drinking. And, um, he came back with both drinks in hand and he looked at me and he said, we're leaving. (laughs) I mean, I didn't quite understand why, uh, but I picked up my little steno pad and my pen and followed him out And um, it was only the next day or after the next day that I discovered that the reason that we were leaving and we wouldn't be meeting Bill Vec is because the bartender, who was an African-American man, um, had told Roger that women weren't allowed in the bard's room and that uh, if he'd have to take his secretary and leave, you know, unless he just sent me out and he could stay. And the next morning, Roger called Bill Vec and uh, said, this is not going to stand. He said, you are going to tell them that we're going to be sitting in that room together tonight. And Bill Vec, who wasn't a fan of women being around either, uh, told Roger that he had no control over it. It was the writer's decision. And Roger would have none of it. And he writes this scene. I didn't know all of this, but he writes this scene in this book, in his book. And that's when I really got the understanding of what happened. And he said, he said to Bill, he said, no, no, you own this stadium, you own this team, and you're going to make a change. Wow. And so that next, so that next night, um, Bill and Roger and I did sit there until about two thirty or three, me sipping seltzers and them talking baseball. And um, but that those two moments, those two moments at the end of the '76 season really um, sort of laid their memory track for me over that winter break. And uh, when we came into the 77 season, um, you know, I think they were still sort of vivid memories for me as we started that season, which would end, as you know, with the World Series, where uh, the commissioner would ban me from all access to the locker rooms. Um, I'm happy to share with you sort of what happened during the 77 season that made this banning um, you know, such a, uh, I don't know, such a slap in the face for me who had worked very, very hard under the radar, not make, wanting to make this into a public scene, understanding that I was trying to set a path for others who would come after me and trying to do it in a way that wasn't going to be disruptive to um, to baseball. Um, basketball and hockey had already done this by this point, and I thought there's no reason it can't happen. And since I'm the only woman, let's work, try to make it happen, but do it in a way that doesn't make it into a public scene. I was, I'd done everything I could to avoid what ended up happening at the end of that year. Mm. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about the lawsuit. I mean, I'm sure you've answered this question thousands of times, but how would you broadly characterize the response of the players to your being in the locker room? Well, let's 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 go back then a little bit to the 77 season, because um, 
you know, midway through the season, and again, I'd mostly been in New York because that's where I was based. And of course, as you know, the Yankees that year were a soap opera, both off the field and a little bit on the field as they were driving toward what would become the American League Championship and then the World Series. Um, so I'd spent a lot of time around the Yankees, and I'd privately spoken a lot to Mickey Morabito, who was a public relations person who, unlike the older men of the PR uh, business at that time with teams, he understood kind of what was happening in the larger world outside. He was my age. And I would go to him and explain some of the frustrations with my lack of access, you know, to the players. And it seemed absurd to me, for example, that I could not go into the locker room prior to the game after batting practice when not one player was going to be changing out of their uniform. And I think Mickey understood it, and he certainly made every effort to try to accommodate as best he could. So right after the All-Star break, he came to me and he said, I think I have an idea that can give you a bit more access. And what it was is that he would walk through the front door that was guarded for the, pre- for the clubhouse, and he would then come immediately around to the side door of the clubhouse, which was unguarded, where he would have me waiting. He'd open that side door, and he'd walk me through a passageway that only went – well, if you went through the door, it could go into the locker room. But if you stopped short of the door, it was Billy Martin's office. And so he would do that for every game that I was at for the rest of the season. Um, and so at least he gave me the access to Billy's office, where, of course, I would hear about the dynamics of the clubhouse because the reporters would come in and ask Billy the questions that were based on what the players were saying. So it did give me a larger sense of what was kind of happening within the team. And that one was fine. I didn't push for anything more. I thought this is gradual. This is good. And the and the you know New York writers would come in and out. They'd see me there. And Dave, not one writer wrote about this. Mm. Never heard a story about it because they they sort of knew me. They were used to me. I was just sitting on the couch. I wasn't you know it was no big deal. And so the last two games of the '77 season, Mickey left for me clubhouse passes. He never said to me they're restricted. You can only go in X, Y, Z time. He gave me the passes. And I believe he had enough trust in me at that point to recognize that I could handle myself and that I could handle having these passes and do it with respect for the players and respect for what he had done for me. And so, in fact, I am playing, doing the gradualist approach, as always. I used those clubhouse passes for the last two games, but I only used them before the game. I didn't go in after the game because I wasn't on an assignment. I didn't need to be there. And so I thought, well, let's just have them get used to me being there before the game. And in fact, no one wrote about it. You had the entire New York press corps there and no one wrote about it. I think it was partly because I handled myself, you know, as a professional and the players seemed okay with it. No one was changing out of the uniform. I don't think anyone really noticed me that much, frankly. Mm. It wasn't a big deal. And so by the American League championships, I had a press pass that gave me access to the clubhouse and the Yankees were used to me. And so I used that press pass during the American League series. Again, no one wrote about it. And again, Mm. I think it was because of how I was handled. So we get to the World Series and I again have a press pass issued to me from Major League Baseball that says I have access to the clubhouse. So presumably I could have continued going into the Yankees with it. And I could have gone into the Dodgers clubhouse. But because I knew that the Dodgers didn't have a woman who covered them, I decided on my own 
to make a courtesy call to the Dodgers to say, by the way, I have this pass. It authorizes me to come in. And so I might be coming into your locker room. I want to give you a heads up because I didn't want to create a public scene over it. So from talking to Tommy Lasorda briefly, who put me on to Tommy John, who was the player rep, Tommy John goes back to the players after our talk on the Monday before the series is going to start, meets me on Tuesday night. He says, listen, we took a vote. The players said, fine, they understand. He said it wasn't unanimous. There are a few players who don't like this idea at all. But he said, I'm giving you a heads up. You're welcome. It's okay with us. And I'm walking away from Tommy John, the conversation with him, thanking him. And, of course, I didn't have to agree to the players taking a vote. I had a pass that said I could come in, but I went along with every step that people wanted to do to make them comfortable. And so he calls me back briefly. He says, hey, would you go find Steve Brenner, who was the PR guy for the Dodgers, who I didn't know? He said, would you let them know about our conver- him, let them know about the conversation that this might happen? Again, Dave, I'm under no obligation as a journalist to go chasing around looking for a man I've never met to tell him about this conversation for a past that has given me the right to be there. Right. But I did it. I did it. And so I went and told Steve Brenner and he looked like a ghost when I told him and uh, he just dashed away from me. And the next thing I know in the fifth inning, I'm being called up to the main press box. I'm sitting in the auxiliary one because there's always spillover during the series. And um, I get up to the um, press box and the irony to me, as I look back on this is that the baseball people, meaning the commissioner's office, had put Mickey Morabito in the position of having to be the person to tell me that I no longer had access to any clubhouse or to the managers, et cetera. Mickey Morabito, who had gone out of his way to try to ease a smooth transition to this, had worked beside me, had given me the opportunities, had you know really been a partner in this, has the situation, and as I write this in my book, I've written that scene, I just recall him never looking at me in the eye. His head was down. He just, he, he had no choice but to tell me this. And when he finished telling me, I said, Mickey, I need to talk with the commissioner. And he said, you can't. He said, wow. but I can take you, I can take you to Bob Weirs, who's the media person. And he walked me down through the press box and introduced me to Bob Weirs. And Bob Weirs clearly feeling that I might, um, I don't know what he thought, but he probably thought I was going to break down in front of the entire press corps because he immediately walked me back out of where the press box was, where all the writers were, back to the very back recesses of it. And he basically delivered the message again to me in his own inimitable way. And I said, well, the Dodgers have given me permission. The Yankees have given me permission. And he looked at me and he said, permission was never granted. Only the commissioner can grant permission and you don't have it. And you never will. And so that's why I ended up in the baseball suit. It wasn't because I, you know, kind of went out to get involved in the baseball, you know, in a legal action against baseball. That was never my intent. I didn't want that to happen. I wanted to have it happen in a way that no one was aware of it was happening. You know? Um, that was not so me. It, it, it wasn't me. It wasn't me, you know. I mean, you know, I could say that, you know, Shirley might not have been proud of me um, in the sense that I hadn't, you know, kind of gone to the front lines and fought, you know, this battle. 
but I ended up as a plaintiff, not because I took myself to the front lines, but because I had done everything I could in a way not to be on those front lines to make this happen. And the commissioner made that impossible, mm. made it impossible. Well, so one, that's once, how I ended up in court. Yeah. <laughs> now, once you were able to get into the locker room after the court case, yeah. Who do you remember being particularly supportive of you at that time, particularly among the players? Oh, I think most of them. I mean, you know, I, and again, I'm writing this in my book now as I look back on it. You know, teams would have, and I think the, the women who did spent much more time in locker rooms than I ever did because they ended up being, uh, you know, full-time baseball beat writers, uh, you know, in several years after me, had many more experiences than I can relate to. But I would say there were usually maybe one or two kind of kids, you know, guys on the team that for whatever reason, temperament, uh, wanting to kind of often they were utility players who wanted to kind of be the star in the locker room. And they could do this by, you know, antics or shouting out things or whatever. But I would say overall, most of the guys turned out to be fine with it. I mean. That wasn't to say that there weren't incidents and we know them, we can look at them and they're still happening. I mean, it happened in the Houston Astros locker room last yes. year. So, you know, it, it, it was a fewer number. It's always a minority that, that sort of get the attention because they do things to get attention. Um, but that is not to underestimate. I mean, Claire Smith was literally forced out of the San Diego locker room during the um, when she was covering the um, the World Series. And uh, I think Jean Williams was the manager and they basically forced her out of the locker room when she was on deadline. And it was only because Steve Garvey, uh, because, well, because Henry Heck from The New York Post saw her in tears outside and went in and asked her, who can I get? And she said, please get Steve Garvey out. And Steve came out in the hallway and said, Claire, Claire, you have to stop crying, but I'll do whatever I can to help you. And he sort of became her liaison to get uh, quotes. That was in 1984, I believe. So, you know, this didn't end with my lawsuit. This did not end. I mean, you know, a legal action was binding on only the Yankees because it was only in the district court, but other teams did go along with it. But there were teams, particularly in the National League, who didn't. So this took time. And, you know, legal changes are one thing, but changing attitudes is a very different thing. It can take decades. I would argue we're still in the process of changing attitudes, judging from most of the uh, Twitter feeds that uh, greet uh, women sports writers today. But, um, but yeah, so, um, you know, I, I can't really signal out. I mean, um, you know, the Yankees were great. The Yankee players were terrific, you know. Um, you know, of course, there were antics. I mean, the Yankees did one day um, when I walked in early on in this, and I can't remember exactly the date. I didn't keep a diary of this at the time, but I do remember it well. There was kind of a picnic table where they would sit and, um, and autograph balls. This would often be in the time after batting practice. And I remember walking in and seeing on a little table in front of it a um, cake, a little cake that had a sign for women only. And it was baked in the, in the shape of a penis. And I thought, well, okay. So, you know, I kind of walked by it not knowing it was going to be there. Uh, but then the rest of the time, I just kind of avoided being in that area and tried to just kind of ignore it. Um, 
uh, I just, again, I didn't want to make a scene out of things, um, but I think I knew when there would be a red line. I mean, certainly there was a red line in the, um, in the New England Patriots locker room when uh, Zeke Mohat and some of his friends uh, decided that they would, um, you know, literally sexually harass um, Lisa Olson in their locker room. And I think I always knew that if something like that happened, there would be that red line. But I also knew that I was in a men's locker room and that I was the outsider. I was the person coming in just like the rest of the reporters and that I just had to deal with the ways that men conduct themselves in a locker room. And so if there was locker room talk going on, um, unless it was to the point that was, uh, you know, demeaning and, and degrading to me in front of me in my presence, um, I did my best to just ignore it. And what else was I going to do? I mean, I wasn't going to change them. Mm. I wasn't. So. Yeah, great segue to the the one other thing I wanted to speak to you about. And you've been so generous with your time. I really do appreciate it. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what your response was when you heard about Kim Eng's ascension to running. Oh, the- oh my God. I mean, I was so excited. I mean, that news came across in uh, one of my little kind of headline things that bounces out at me, you know, every once in a while when I'm working on my on my screen. And I then went to the story immediately and I went, oh, my God. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't I will confess because I've been out of sports writing for decades. You know, I didn't know her as, of course, many others in the business. My great friend, Susan Waldman, you know, who's been broadcasting the Yankees for 14 seasons. You know, she obviously knew Kim during her time there. And Susan Susan and I got right on texting each other and very excited, um, you know, to hear this news. And Susan sort of caught me up a little bit on her history, which was, again, a very frustrating and, and history of great patience. And as Kim said herself, dogged persistence. And, um, you know, when when um, Sports Illustrated um, called me, Emma called me from Sports Illustrated and wanted to kind of do a story based on me thinking about what this meant all these years later, what I began was to point out from Kim's own quotes about her life with the notion of, you know, her resoluteness to kind of keep going for her goal, her dogged persistence. You know, these words just leapt out at me and I totally, totally understood. I mean, there was just an, a sense of visceral sense that, you know, I understood from baseball in the 1970s what she was conveying in those words about what she had to put up with through all those years of coming so close where people thought she would be the next, you know, first woman GM and how far back. I mean, we have to almost go 15 years back where she was being talked about in this way. Right. And, and so many disappointments along the way, so many interviews, so many, you know, I'm this close and then not getting it. So, um, and just, Staying with it, staying with it. And how many times she was the only woman woman in the room, you know, in all of those times. And so I understood all of that. I understood all of it. And I understood it, you know, most particularly in the in the realm of baseball, you know, which was just really the boys club, the men's club. And um, and frankly, it, it still is. And, you know, had she been a man, she would have gotten the job. I'm convinced of that. You know, from what I've now read and what I've learned about her and what I've heard in terms of the praise that she got 
mm-hmm. from the people that she worked with at the White Sox, at the Dodgers, at the Yankees. You know, I, I, it's just extraordinary to me that she was didn't get this sooner. But I'm grateful she got it now. You know, she'll have many years to build that team. And my God, I mean, you know, I I, I learned to love baseball because my mother shared her love of the Red Sox when she would sit with her father in the in the Fenway Park in the 1940s. And she learned how to score games and she had uh, pictures of all the players, you know, thumbtacked around her room as she listened to all the games and she passed her love of baseball on to me. It wasn't from my father. My father was a football fan. He grew up in the Midwest. He might have liked the Chicago White Sox, but he was a football fan, and he taught me to love football early on. But my mother was the one who taught me to love baseball, and she taught me to love the Red Sox. And she brought me to Fenway Park when I was young, and she passed on those photographs that have the thumbtack hole in them that she put around her cornice of her bedroom every year so that she would have the Red Sox players staring down at her as she listened to the games on the radio and scored them and kept them in a scrapbook. She taught me that. She taught me the love of the Red Sox. But I will tell you, I'm now rooting for the Marlins and I'm rooting for the Red Sox. Nice. Nice. Uh, You know, baseball, of course, is more conservative than other sports culturally, I think, in many ways. Uh, Do you think the hiring of Kim Ng can hold the potential to crack that culture open a little bit, provide more opportunities, make the league a little bit more open to the 21st century? Or am I ascribing too much importance to one hire? I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did. But I do know that, again, doing more reading about Kim and particularly reading a story yesterday that was published on Baseball for All. And if you don't know about Baseball for All, Justine Siegel, who was a coach on a major league team, founded Baseball for All for girls because there are over 100,000 girls in this country now playing baseball. And they, she interviewed uh, Kim, and uh, she gave instances in that story about the work that Kim has done that's probably been uncelebrated and probably unknown by most people who even know her, where she herself has gone out of her way to meet girls who are playing baseball, to actually spend time with them, to nurture their interest in this game, to let them understand that she's there, she's, she's building a pathway, and it's a pathway that they can follow. You know, when I filed my lawsuit, Sports Illustrated received a lot of hate mail, a lot of hate mail from men who canceled their subscriptions, and baseball used those letters in our court case and brought them to the judge's attention. But the letters they never mentioned and the letters that still exist in the archives of my lawyers in New York who fought my case for me, and that I've read, and Dave, I'm glad to let you know that in those archives, it also shows that I responded to them, were the um, letters that were written by young girls who told me how much it meant to them that I had filed this case, and how much they loved baseball, and how they'd never seen a place for themselves in it. And so I do know that these things make a difference. I know it from my personal experience. And what I see in Kim is someone who's already laid the groundwork, you know, for this, not only in what she stands for, but more importantly, in what she personally did in these years. You know, and even in the early stories, it talked about her supporting the softball and the, and the softball leagues and the, you know, little leagues. And, you know, back in my day in the 70s, girls were, were having to go to court 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg actually represented briefly one of these girls in New Jersey that went to court because the Little League said she couldn't play baseball, you know, with them. So there we are from the 70s to now. And so what I see in Kim is someone who's already laid the foundations for this and who's you know, ascension at this point, making the news that it is, um, you know, can certainly be a touchstone for um, for these girls. And there are hundreds of thousands of them who love this game and want to be involved in it to to one day, you know, move up. How this will happen within baseball's inner ranks and whether, in fact, other teams will look to move in this direction, as, you know, many of the NBA teams are doing now. Um, they're certainly the league that's leading this in terms of bringing women into the men's uh, teams as coaches, et cetera. They still haven't cracked that glass ceiling of having a, a coach uh, be a woman. But, um, you know, this is going to happen. How quickly I, I don't have I don't have a magic you know ball to look into to say how quickly I'd hope I'd hope it's quicker than uh, what Kim had to go through. No, no doubt about that. Indeed. Um just one last question for you. And again, thank you so much for being so generous with your time um, oh, on this. Welcome. It's been a blast to go through this history. I love it. Um, I always ask folks who are guests on the show, what kind of music they're listening to, particularly you as you're undergoing this big writing project right now, but what music is, do you work to, if any at all? I actually don't write to music. Um, I do take to mind that um, sort of, making my what's an older brain right now <laughs> i'm almost 70 um you know kind of try to multitask because um so i don't write to music let's put it that way in terms of the music i listen to um bob dylan i love mm-hmm. bob dylan i'm probably in some ways maybe stuck in the music of my generation um that's where i really turn back to um He's just one of my favorites. I recently re- uh, watched a documentary. I think it was on Netflix um, about um, Dylan. Um, you know, so I think that um, maybe some of the um, I, I love, you know, Whitney Houston. Um, I, I love Ella Fitzgerald. You know, it depends on what my mood is. Um, so I think I'm much more back in the older music than I am. Um, in the current music. I have a 24-year-old daughter, so I'm occasionally exposed to new music, so it's not that I am bereft of of hearing what's happening, but I think that I really kind of linger in some of the music that I really knew from the the past. I also loved, loved, loved Hamilton, and I did buy a seat for myself in the nosebleed area of the upper reaches of the balconies in Boston when they came to town, and um, even seeing it from that uh, height and distance, I fell in love with it. And um, so I'll often turn to the to the background of Hamilton to just kind of uh, sing along and um, kind of live that that musical. I love Broadway musicals, and so um, that one's really kind of stayed with me. I think as it does with lots of people who've seen it. So yeah, tremendous. Um, I'll just say thank you so much. I really appreciate the time, Melissa Ludke. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you for asking, because one of the things I've committed myself to is telling this story, both in my own book, um, which I'm slowly writing, 
Um, but also through, as you mentioned, um, you know, doing Zooms now. I used to go into classes and teach this history and, and share my story, but now I do it by Zoom. And uh, what's wonderful is uh, it seems like, I don't know what the month is, but there's a month when people are assigned History Day projects now in school. Yeah, and it does yeah. seem that each, each year I get more and more requests um, to see if I'll participate and be sort of the subject, my case, et cetera, as a history day project. So I've realized that if you live long enough, you do become an historical figure even while you're alive. And so I always say yes. I've done it with a class in Georgia. The woman, young woman who did it in Alaska actually made it to the national finals um, with her history project that she did. And right now I am being interviewed by four different uh, young women it's not always young women who are doing um, sort of final term papers on my case. And this is, again, sort of a regular thing that happens. And no matter who asks, I always make the time for it, because I think that's really kind of why I did this back in the 70s. So um, so it's something that matters to me to just make this story possible for people who are much younger and might say it has no relevance to my life. I hope that I can make it relevant to their lives. No, it's, it's, it couldn't be more relevant. Um, well, th- thank you so much. Really do appreciate the time. Thanks for being on the Nation's Edge of Sports podcast. Great. Thank you, Dave, for for your interest and uh, for your time as well. Take care. Oh, terrific. Uh, we'll be back right after this, after a quick message from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about Colin Kaepernick's latest venture. Okay, look, the racism embedded in our criminal justice system has been on the forefront of public consciousness this year. Debates about defunding the police, prison abolition, and how to actually dismantle the entire machine have gone from the fringes to the streets to the op-ed pages of the New York Times. In the process, these debates have opened a rift between those in the Democratic Party who believe this discussion will alienate centrist voters, and people at the base who marched over the summer taking this analysis as the clarion call of the future. What we haven't seen this year, somewhat surprisingly, is a national reckoning over the lifetime imprisonment of Mumia Abu-Jamal. For years, the most famous death row prisoner in the United States, the former Black Panther's innocence in the killing of Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner, was once an article of faith on the left. Mumia's conviction was the symbol for everything racist and corrupt about the police, the prison system, and the politics of death row. While behind bars, Mumia has broadcast more than 3,000 commentaries around the world and is about to release his 12th book, Murder Incorporated, Perfecting Tyranny, Book 3. So he has hardly been invisible. 
But since Mumia has been taken off death row, only the lifelong devoted have remained vigilant about his case. That could change now that exiled NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick has entered the fray. Kaepernick has, of course, spent the last three seasons out of the NFL, following his year of taking a knee during the anthem to protest racist police killings. He said in August 2016, after first kneeling, I am not going to stand up and show pride in a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. This is not something I am going to run by anybody. I am not looking for approval. I have to stand up for people that are oppressed. If they take football away, my endorsements from me, I'll know that I stood up for what is right. But they did, in fact, take football away. But that hasn't stopped him from speaking out. In the last year, he has become a symbol of the protest movement, with people wearing his jersey to demonstrations, kneeling during marches, and carrying signs that read, Kaepernick told the truth. He has also curated a series on Medium about police and prison abolition, a how-to of essays from leading thinkers about how and why we should actually dismantle the criminal justice system. Now Kaepernick is turning his attention to Mumia, an act of courage that could hold the potential to revive Mumia's case in the lexicon of the struggle. In a video statement, Kaepernick goes through the case in detail, in effect educating this new generation about the facts surrounding Mumia's case. He also says, When I was invited to speak on behalf of Mumia, one of the first things that came to mind was how long he's been in prison how many years of his life had been stolen away from him, his community, and his loved ones. He's been incarcerated for 38 years. Mumia has been in prison longer than I've been alive. When I first spoke with Mumia on the phone, I did very little talking. I just listened. Hearing him speak was a reminder of why we must continue to fight. Today, we're living through a moment where it's acceptable to paint end racism now in front of the Philadelphia Police Department's headquarters, and yet a political prisoner who has since the age of 14 dedicated his life to fighting against racism continues to be caged and lives his life on a slow death row. We're in the midst of a moment that says Black Lives Matter, and if that's truly the case, then it means that Mumia's life and legacy must matter, and the causes that he sacrificed life and freedom for must matter as well. End quote. By connecting the struggle for Mumia with the current moment, Kaepernick is further putting himself in a different kind of space than athletes who are testing the political waters by calling for police reform. Kaepernick is saying that the police cannot in fact be reformed and any movement worth its salt needs to have solidarity with revolutionaries behind bars, revolutionaries like Mumia Abu-Jamal. I reached out to Johanna Fernandez, associate professor at Baruch College, a leading member of the movement to bring Mumia home, and author of the book, The Young Lords, A Radical History. She said, Moments of social upheaval produce individuals of great integrity willing to risk everything for the common good. But rarely does history bring together symbols of resistance from different epochs. It has in the case of Colin and Mumia. Colin's defense of this black radical connects the battle against police violence with the one against imprisonment and ushers in hope for abolition and the reorganization of society that we need.
Like Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos, Colin has experienced the unforgiving consequences of challenging the status quo in the world of sports. His defense of Mumia cements his place in history as someone willing to stand on principle and demand justice above all. What Kaepernick is doing is daring for someone still trying to get back into the NFL, a league that does police appreciation days. He's putting it all at risk for a man described as the voice of the voiceless. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast with the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards. The Just Stand Up Award this week in the world of sports goes to the young men at the NBA draft who repped Black Lives Matter. Several of the people who were drafted did just that, with a special note going to Tyrese Halliburton, who somehow fell to the Sacramento Kings. Terrific young prospect. And he had Black Lives Matter stitched into the inside of his coat. Someone like Tyrese Halliburton was something like 15 years old when Kaepernick first took that knee. And it just says something about how embedded in the sports culture it is that you now have to stand for something. That it's not enough just to stand for making money, selling products, but you actually have to use your platform to try to do something about the world. Colin Kaepernick is the person who, more than any other, made that a part of sports culture. And for these young athletes, they've grown up from the time they were teenagers looking at Colin Kaepernick and saying, yes, this is the way the sports world should be. And you saw that at the NBA draft. Very exciting. So just stand up to the young fellas like Tyrese Halliburton at the NBA draft. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down, Sit your ass down. goes to, I guess, the locker room culture at Penn State University, home of the Nittany Lions. I hate picking on this team, but here we are. Allegations of players simulating sexual assaults against smaller players in the locker room, saying to those players that they're going to Sandusky you, and Coach James Franklin, one of the most respected people in the game, has been accused of telling one player who had a knife pulled on him to not call the police. James Franklin denies that charge. Listen, if you're Penn State, I'm sorry, you don't get the benefit of the doubt in this situation. Way too much recent history for that. They need to be extra clean. James Franklin should call for an investigation, an internal investigation, into these charges which are being so hotly denied. And James Franklin needs to take the lead in defending his program if it is in fact clean. These charges are just too serious and Penn State's history is just too rancid to brush this under the rug.
Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much to everybody. Thank you to my producer, David Tigabu. Thank you to everybody out there listening. If you like the show, please do the right thing and give it a rating. Write a little review of this bad boy and make sure that whatever algorithms exist that push podcasts to the front of the table, that Edge of Sports gets its due. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty and please wear a mask. We are out of here. Peace. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, 
for the ones who get it done.